in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, John Flack, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies, then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and also your other host is Brian Fry. Brian, how are you Good doing? Good evening, everybody. I'm doing well, man. How are you? Um, I'm doing great. From the mountains of Spokane, how, how, how are things out there? Oh, man, it's getting warm. That high desert's really coming into play. Although, I got to say, even when it's 70 degrees here, it feels like it's 50, which is fantastic. Well, if uh, if that's not hot enough for you, we brought some hot, hot heat for you. We got Chris Shreve from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great. Nice to finally get on the show with you guys. We uh, we haven't we haven't really kicked off the heat here in Texas yet, but it's it's on its way. Right now, we're just in the uh, waves of thunderstorms and hail. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, so first time on the show, I got to say, Chris and Brian and I all know each other. We all went to high school together. But Chris, down in Dallas, what is it you do? I'm a systems engineer for a defense contractor. Uh, That job is sort of unknown to most, but we're the guys that uh, make all the pieces work together. So when you talk about being a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, software engineer, we're the guys that bring all the pieces together, tell everybody what they got to do, and uh, make the whole thing function as it should so like defense you mean like a wall right (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly big big defense right i I make defense signs and we and we take them out to football stadiums (laughs) yeah the letter d and then the actual fence then the actual fence right that we manufacture thousands of those and distribute them to college football stadiums across the country so what kind of customer service issues do you have when you accidentally say mail a fence fence (laughs) Uh, like a full fence, like a chain yeah, fence. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. Just like, oh, you get the we... returns back, and uh, they, they, they say they asked for a picket and, and gave a <laughs> chain link, and they're, and they're really angry. Fantastic. It, it is good. Uh, Chris, I hear on the streets, I hear rumors that you like movies. This is true. I watch a lot of, a lot of movies. Uh, most of the stuff I watch is, is more recent than what we're looking at today. But, uh, yeah, I... I my wife and I really enjoyed going to see movies when we lived in California. I worked in movie theater through high school, so I saw everything that came out uh, between the years of, what, like 2000 to 2003. And, yeah, I, I've always enjoyed it. And it's just now the kids are getting old enough. We actually went and saw uh, The Avengers with my 5-year-old and 7-year-old like, a few weeks back. And they sat through the whole thing. So, Wow, hey. really? Yeah. That's a win. Man. Yeah. So we're getting back into seeing movies again. Yeah. Raising them right. That's good parenting, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So I got some questions for you. These are these these are not questions that anybody can answer, but maybe you can. What is your favorite car from a movie? Because I hear you're a car guy. Yeah, I had a really hard time with this, um, but uh, 1967 Camaro from Better Off Dead is what is what Ooh. wins it for me. Uh, as far as like the, the the coolness of the car and the and the integration into the movie, I, I loved that that you know how he builds up that car as as he builds up himself, sort of you know from a from a guy who wants to kill himself and a car that doesn't run to uh, to having a better, a, a nice car and a, and a better life. 
Mm. So. Good movie too. Uh, that sounds like another good candidate for retro movie roundtable at some point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I really like that movie. I hadn't seen it in years. It's actually on YouTube. The entire thing is like on SD and YouTube. I almost watched it the other night. Yeah, I, oddly enough, I've been watching a lot of old '90s cartoons on on YouTube. Like, I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but I was watching Pirates of Dark Water. But it's basically this kid, and he has like an amulet that leads him places for a reason and anyway one of the the dangers of the sea is basically these oil slicks that they call dark water and oh they just yeah watch. i remember this now yeah it's purple right uh well sure <laughs> <I guess laughs> depends, depends on how good your crt tv was back then okay next one for you though chris first movie that you remember seeing as a kid yeah, this one's a little embarrassing, but the first movie I remember seeing as a kid is The Little Mermaid. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I, I did not. I, my mom took it to took me to that movie on my birthday. All I wanted to go do was go to the hobby shop and not, look at the trains, but my mom said we're going to go see The Little Mermaid, and uh, that sticks out in my memory. No need to play it cool because uh, I saw that one as well, and I liked it quite a bit, so I'm not ashamed. Yeah, yeah. I, I just as soon as I started thinking about it, I was like, is that really the first movie I remember seeing? And sure enough, that's that's it. And then Under the Sea was in your head for the rest of the day. Uh, well, we did get to go see the trains afterwards, so I think Under the Sea was out as soon as I got to go see the trains. Nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, no birthday would be complete without trains. And yeah. favorite auto chase scene from a movie because today's movie, as we'll get to in a second here, is kind of the grandfather of the car chase scene. Uh, what's your favorite though? Uh, it's the Moscow car chase scene in the Bourne Supremacy, mm. uh, where he's driving the taxi. Nice. Uh, mm. I just love that yeah. movie so much, uh, or that that chase scene anyway. Just... So, is it negative? Like, is this a negative to car enthusiasts to say the chase scene in the Shelby at the end of Gone in sixty seconds? Yeah, because you kind of see it get destroyed. Oh, uh, okay. So that's like the that. I don't that's... know. Yeah, I don't mind seeing a taxi get beat all to hell, right? But okay. seeing a classic right. car just get wrecked. It, it, it hurts me a little bit, just a little bit. I don't know. Do they actually use a real car for that, or is it a kit car? I hope it's a kit car. I, I For like two seconds, I considered being like, yeah, I can't believe they wrecked six of them just to film that, but that was just a made-up fact that would have given me pleasure to hear the no. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I would do that just to mess with you, but you, you kind of went – you got past it already, and I was like, all right, never mind. Yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've healed. Your pick, Chris, is my picks, by the way. Yeah, I always wondered what they did in, like, Fast and the Furious. Like, they've made eight of these movies. I want to know how many, like, $100,000 cars they've wrecked in the making of those. You know how they do no animals were harmed in this movie? Oh, like, no. The, yeah, the I cars, they're a pretty authentic. Yeah, I want to see a disclaimer, like, we wrecked all the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like the Blues Brothers, where they set the yeah. record those cars wrecked, right? Right. But uh, twenty-two Jump Street. It's all very expensive. I mean, it looks cool, but it's just really expensive. <laughs> you know, and there's been so many Fast and the Furious movies that I don't even remember all the cars have gotten wrecked in them. But I, I don't really like the 1970 Charger from the first one. That that oh, one I... that one hurts a little bit. Yeah, I don't care about the super gets wrecked or not. Those things are are crazy expensive on the street now. But well, then but, it wasn't a big deal, right? Because back it, it kind of like, yeah, it wasn't as big of a deal. The but Mitsubishi now... Eclipse was like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the DSM from the, the DSM Eclipse from the beginning. Yeah, it's a. Uh... Well, without further ado, we're going to get into today's movie. As I mentioned, we've got the grandfather of all car chase scenes in this movie. We're looking at Bullet from 1968. It was produced for a budget of $5.5 million, and it grosses a good bit money more than that 
and it's at $42.3 million US. It places at number five in the box office this year, so a lot of people went to go see it. It comes in behind The Odd Couple, love that movie, and it comes in ahead of Romeo and Juliet, uh, which I've seen that movie as well. So, And if you're curious to see what the number one movie from that year was, it was 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Brian, you know what? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a podcast that had an episode that covered 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yeah, I still can't believe you guys did that one. Yeah, we did. Out of all of Stanley, Stanley Kubrick's movies, you guys went went with the one with maybe like six lines in the entire movie and the first 45 <laughs> minutes of silence. Yep, and we did it. It's actually a, it's a high download. It's still hanging in there in the top 10. So, IMDb gives Bullet, though, a 7.5 rating, and the critics of Rotten Tomatoes like this a good bit more. They give it a 97% fresh rating. Audiences of Rotten Tomatoes also like it a good bit more than the IMDb uh, audiences. They give it an 85% fresh. Uh, it wins the Academy Award for Best Editing and uh, was nominated for Best Sound. It also has five nominations from the BAFTA. Uh, those are the British version of the Oscars, uh, as mentioned before on this show. It also came away with some other interesting awards that are perhaps less known. It won the Alan Trustman Award in 1969 for Best Motion Picture. Uh, it won the National Society Film Critics Award for Best Cinematography, a la William Fracker. And it won the Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing. And it won the Golden Laurel Awards for Best Action Drama, Best Action Performance by Steve McQueen, and Best New Female Face by the lovely Jacqueline Bissett. Let's talk about this one a little bit. Chris, Bullet, have you seen it before? If so, when? I had not seen this movie before. It's been sort of a, hey, car guys, you know, ought to see this movie and i'd never seen it so uh but i came in expecting you know a, an exciting action movie with uh cars front and center based on the the lore that it gets within the, the car enthusiast world and the fact that it has a special edition mustang basically every generation of that car named after it interesting i didn't know that yeah yeah there's there's been bullet mustangs every pretty much every like body style of mustang has come out with a bullet edition at some point or another are they always highland green no they're not yeah it's the, uh, the the green color. Green didn't stick with it. Just uh, high performance. Guess people trying to adopt Steve McQueen's cool. Man, he's got cool to spare. Highland green. That's the second. That's the second most interesting green color adjective I've, or, yeah. uh, that I've I think heard. It, I didn't know that's the color of it. I, I would have gone with like a, uh, a a forest green. It's a pretty dark green. Yeah, it is. I for some reason I I have this stuck in my head. But my uh, my mom used to drive an Infiniti QX4, and the only reason I remember all of this is when she was at the dealership. They were like, "The only one we have is in Millennium Jade," <laughs> and I was like, hmm. "Wow, that sounds fancy." Well, they, just, they they can't just call it blue. Like yeah. that's, that's too boring. Millennium Jade. Yeah, when you said that's my second favorite green, I was like, "What's your first Soylent green?" <laughs> There's a British racing green that they make Miatas in that I love. When it comes to green cars. Ooh. Anyway, uh, Brian, what about you? Bullet, 1968, Steve McQueen. First time for you. Have you seen it before? If so, when? Uh, also a first time for me. Um, I, I struggled with this movie, uh, not because of content, but because I procrastinated on watching it. And uh, I thought I owned it and just hadn't gotten around to watching it yet. It turns out I actually own Steve McQueen's The Getaway. And, uh, so yeah, I was like, okay, I got to buy this movie and watch it. So I bought it last night and man, the first 45 minutes, like I'm nodding off. I need yeah. someone. I even verbally said, I need someone to get shot. Now I'm falling asleep. 
<laughs> okay, so the pacing's a little bit slow for yeah. your taste then, or is well, it no, just because that... uh, you're a procrastinator? No, it's, it's totally because of the procrastination, because I started watching it like 8 o'clock last night, and, you know, I fell asleep in the theater for Thor Ragnarok, and it was one of my favorite MCU movies because I just shoved too much into one day. And I think it's just that I'm old now. I think that's just the bottom line is unless I have gratuitous violence, like I just couldn't get the build to the show without falling asleep. Now I've rewatched the entire thing today. We're good, but, and I enjoyed it, but yeah, man, watching it at eight o'clock at night after starting my day at 6am walking the dog, uh, we went zip lining with Jess's parents. Like I just, I put so much into yesterday. And then when I finally got around to watching this movie, man, I couldn't keep my eyes open. Okay, I, I haven't been there yet, but uh, I, I know that day is coming my way. I have I have a baby on the way, and so uh, struggling through a movie while being tired is definitely headed my way coming soon this August. But for me, I have seen Bullet before. In fact, I saw it in college. Uh, Mary and I were kind of going through a lot of the AFI top thrills list, of which this is on. And I got to this, loved it. I remember I had a friend in high school who was into 60s movies, and uh, he recommended it to me, so it stuck in my head. I actually really liked this movie then, and somehow I like it way better now. I remember having a hard time following what was going on in the first part of the movie the first time I watched it. So I eventually the action kicked in, and I was I was enamored by the you know, style of the movie at the time. And uh, I was telling Chris before we started this, it hits me in my James Bond spot. And that's a, that's a good spot to hit me. I was actually on for that. I was listening to it. It's an interesting parallel you put to Bond. Um, I didn't get that. Uh, I was getting Dirty Harry. Oh, well, San Francisco. That's a good, that's a good call there. So I like the whole time I was sitting here thinking, man, why did they never make a crossover movie? That'd be so much fun. Mm. I would like more of these bullet movies, but we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about bullet. There will be spoilers, however. So if you're uh, on guard to not have any spoilers for bullet, you're going to want to pause this, go watch the movie, come back and join us the rest of the way. So uh, we'll be back after these messages. So driving instructor Simmons, how did I do? Well, Wendy, it's your 13th time taking the test, making it a baker's dozen. Let's review, shall we? You began your test by hitting nine cones, then leaving the driver's course by passing through a fence. You then signaled left, turned right across three lanes of traffic into oncoming traffic. Is that bad? It's not good, Wendy, because then you exceeded speed limits of 120 miles per hour and the hood of the car spontaneously combusted. You then drove off of a bridge, landing in a lake, and I should note that I didn't deduct you the points because landing in the lake put the fire out. Yay, that's nice. You then miraculously drove the car out of the lake and then provoked a car full of heavily tattooed and armed Korean gang members in a drag race. While you won the race, the Koreans were sore losers and shot the car full of lead, wounding me in my leg. But there is also good news, Wendy. Really? Yes. This time, your driving instructor remained in the vehicle at all times and you responsibly played the retro movie roundtable the whole time. You gave the show a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, downloaded the show on Stitcher, Google, Spotify, and other various sources. And I also appreciate that you liked the show on Facebook and told all of your friends to listen. You also emailed the show at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Now, due to the Retro Movie Roundtable, you offset your other heinous infractions and passed your driver's exam. Wendy, you're far from a good driver, but you passed your exam and you did well enough to earn yourself a driver's license here in the great state of Florida. Wow, thanks, Retro Movie Roundtable. I couldn't have done it without you. And we're back. And good news. Chris is going to tell us what happens in Bullet. So one last warning. There are spoilers that lie ahead. Chris? Refresh people's memory who haven't seen Bullet since 1968. Yeah. All right. So 
the movie kicks off with a uh, U.S. Senator Walter Chalmers uh, presenting a star witness or setting up to present a star witness at a Senate subcommittee hearing on organized crime to be held in San Francisco. Johnny Ross, who we see during the opening credits escaping a Chicago building, is a defector from the Chicago organization and is to be put under con protective custody over the weekend until his Monday appearance in front of a Senate subcommittee. Seeking to associate his grandstanding mob-busting efforts with a high-visibility detective, Chalmers requests Lieutenant Frank Bullitt to be put in charge. Bullitt, played by Steve McQueen, whom we first meet hungover from some unknown activity, and his team, Delgetti and Stanton, head over to the cheap motel selected by Chalmers and decide to take shifts providing Ross with round-the-clock protection. After getting his team settled and shifts assigned, Bullitt takes off to meet his girlfriend Kathy at work and they go out to dinner. Stanton is on watch when the desk clerk calls at 1 a.m. Saturday morning, announcing that Chalmers and a friend want to come up to the hotel, from the hotel lobby. While Stanton checks by phone with Bullitt, Ross secretly unchains the door, and two hitmen burst into the room and shoot Stanton and Ross with a shotgun, seriously wounding both men. At the hospital, Chalmers holds Bullitt responsible. Bullitt soon thwarts a second assassination attempt by the hitmen, but Ross dies of his original wounds anyway. Dr. Willard, who has had his competence questioned by Chalmers for his age and his race, helps Bullock keep the death a secret by spiriting Ross's dead body out of the hospital by private ambulance, registering it as a John Doe at the city morgue. Bullock, who has hidden the body death from Chalmers, then goes to seek more clues. He finds the cab driver, played by Robert Duvall, who drove Ross to the hotel and recreates Ross's movements upon arriving in town, learning that Ross has made a long-distance call from a phone booth. Bullock's confidential informant, Eddie, reveals that Ross has stolen $2 million from the organization and narrowly escaped an attempted mob hit in Chicago and had fled to San Francisco. Meanwhile, Chalmers serves Bullitt's captain with a writ of habeas corpus to force Bullitt to produce his witness, Ross, since he does not know that Ross has died. While following leads, Bullitt is stalked by the hitman in the black 1968 Charger RT, but he spots them and begins chasing them in the iconic green 1968 Ford Mustang GT fastback. This begins the classic high-speed chase between the two cars, starting in the steep streets of San Francisco, and after many blocks of car chase, the cars move out onto a back bay highway at reckless speed. The hitman fires a shotgun at Bullet, but then Bullet rams their car off the road, forcing their car into a gas station, where a large explosion and a huge deadly fireball kills both men. Bullet and Delgatti face Chalmers and their police superiors on Sunday morning, where harsh words are exchanged. They reluctantly reveal to Chalmers and the captain that Ross has died of sh his shotgun wounds, and that their only lead is a phone record showing Ross's call to a Dorothy Simmons in a hotel nearby San Mateo. With his Mustang damaged and out of commission from the chase, Bullock gets a ride to San Mateo from his girlfriend Kathy in her yellow Porsche Cabriolet. Arriving at the hotel, a man who looks like Ross is seen leaving the hotel, and Bullock enters Sim Simmons' room and finds her on the floor dead, strangled with a wire. Outside in the parking lot, Kathy sees police cars arriving, cops rushing to the hotel, and she follows them in, fearing for Bullet's safety. She is horrified by the crime scene, and on the drive back to Chicago, she asks Bullet to pull over on the side of the highway to talk. There, she confronts and conveys her worries about where the dangerous and violent life he leads as a police detective will take them as a couple, wondering if she should stay with him and attempt to cope with the violence in Bullet's world. Later at the police evidence room, Bullet and Delgatti search Simmons' luggage, discovering brand new clothing, a travel brochure for Rome, and thousands of dollars in traveler's checks made out to Albert and Dorothy Rennick. Bullet is immediately curious about the true identity of the murdered victims. Bullet requests photo passport information for Albert and Dorothy Rennick from the Chicago Police Department and a fingerprint check for the dead witness Ross. A facsimile of Ross of Albert Rennick's passport arrives via the telecopier device at the police headquarters, showing the man they, whom they believe to be gangster Johnny Ross was actually Albert Rennick, 
a used car salesman from Chicago with a startling facial resemblance to Ross. The passport photo of Dorothy Simmons is, in reality, Dorothy Rennick. It now occurs to Bullitt that the murdered bodies of Ross and Simmons were really innocent civilian stand-ins, Mr. and Mrs. Rennick, and Ross, who is still alive after killing Mrs. Rennick, is going to use Mr. Rennick's ticket and passport to head to Rome. Bullitt points out to Chalmers that he has been made a fool by Ross, duped by Ross into an endangering and causing the murders of both Rennicks to throw the mob off of Ross's tail as he prepares to escape to Europe. When Delgetti calls the airlines and finds the Rennicks are booked on an evening flight to Rome, he and Bullitt rush to the San Francisco International Airport and they head to the Rome flight gate only to find out that Ross, as Rennick, did not actually board the flight and changed his ticket to a slightly earlier Pan Am flight to London that is already taxiing off the takeoff runway. Chalmers shows up and intrudes to lay claim to his witness, Ross, but is again firmly rebuffed by Bullet. With help from the airport tower, Bullet has the plane stopped at the runway, but Ross escapes by jumping to the ground out of the rear cabin door. Bullet follows, giving chase across the dark runways and taxiways between the jet aircraft, all while being shot at by Ross before the chase heads into the crowded passenger terminal, where now Bullet decides it's a good time to pull out his pistol. After a suspenseful moment where Bullet can't identify Ross from other similar-looking travelers, we see him recognize Ross, who attempts to escape to the street and shoots two police officers before retreating from a suddenly locked door. Ross takes aim at Bullet, but Bullet shoots first and instantly kill it, kills Ross in front of a panicked crowd. Arriving at the shooting scene, the empty-handed Chalmers sees his witness plans for Ross have come apart, and so he skulks away to his black limousine. Early in the morning, Bullet returns to his home to find Kathy asleep in his bed, having chosen to stay in the relationship, and we get a satisfied smile from Bullet fading to film credits well done very thorough love it uh so bullet first question i have to ask is walter chalmers generic politician like what is this guy's angle i couldn't figure that out yeah me neither that's you know when brian was talking about having a hard time figuring out like what the heck was going on in the beginning of the movie um that's it's it, i think he's just sort of like a stand-in evil politician or self-serving politician yeah i don't know my first Did... question was why is why is there a criminal witness testifying at a federal Senate subcommittee hearing happening in San Francisco. Yeah. Well, didn't they go into them choosing that as the location and why at some point in the beginning? I feel like they discussed that. If they did, I missed it. I don't know. Okay. I feel like they discussed it. I will say this, that I had a really hard time um, with Robert Vaughn because I kept seeing him in basketball. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, man, he just really plays that part so well that he is years later, like a greedy owner having to deal with Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Oh, he yeah. does slimy well for sure. What do you guys think about the actual development here? You, you again, you have a witness. He gets killed, seemingly lets it happen by unlocking the door. There's a lot of unanswered questions. You got the, you know, guy breathing was- down his back, and then he hides it uh, as a John Doe. Do you like this kind of, I guess, uh, detective work? Uh, well, we kind of, so I never really understood why in the world Albert Rennick was unchaining the door. That's never really explained. Like, I was he expecting the real Ross to come back and swap with him. And that's why, like, he unchained the door. I, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't fully understand that. I don't but, think he thought he was going to be killed. I think he thought that the assassins would know it wasn't him and they wanted the attempt to look real. I yeah, think maybe. that he put a phone call into his wife. Uh, they mentioned that specifically just before it had happened. So my guess is he's under the assumption she's coming. Yeah. That's a whole other theory. It's never really spelled out. But but yeah, and then the detective work, I get like he's trying to hide the body so they won't close the case. So Bullet thinks there's something screwy going on. So he hides the body. I'm, I'm good with that. It sort of makes sense. Personally, I like the unveiling or I should say the unfolding of how we end up having the Rennicks, as you mentioned, 
a the the you you the wrong man was killed so to speak and Ross is still in play in fact he's the one masterminding this getaway I particularly liked the back quarter of this movie yeah I th- I, the twist was good I didn't see it coming right it's the so, twist yeah the, the twist was good but uh yeah and so the, then then the next then my next question was did were those mob hitmen they were following following bullet around because presumably they know they didn't kill Ross but I I, I don't know. And then, maybe cause, cause, they don't know what Ross told them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's true. And Ross is still supposed to be alive. Remember, they spirited him away in the middle of the night. So they're probably assuming that he could lead them to him. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe. Well, here, here's here's but, the so plot. The, for, for professional hitmen that came in this, this hotel room, they, they hit one dude in the leg and the other guy in the shoulder and they just didn't just run. Like, I, I, I assume they didn't want to kill the policeman. Like I, like I, that, I took the I took the leg shot as a distinct method of we're here to kill him, not you. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But you're right. For I, mobsters, I, I why would like they operate I think that a, way? I feel like a zombie land double tap was in order here. Like oh, just, absolutely. Just, that, that just go ahead and finish the job. Yeah, and and, and if you kill the policeman, he's not gonna like because the the whole you know the the policeman's the one who tells Bullet in the in the ambulance that who the killer was, right? Like just, just go ahead and kill because them both. Because there's no other five, ten gray-haired men in San Francisco. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, Ball that identification gray-haired. served him well when uh, he uh, led his car into a fireball of a car crash, and they said, uh, "We got two innocent people dead." He's like, "No, no, no, no. I saw him. He had gray hair, and, <laughs> yeah. and he had a shotgun." Well, it did help that he fired a couple rounds at his car. I mean, yeah. I think that the the penalty for shooting a Mustang of that quality is probably probably death by fire <laughs> okay yeah. okay uh brian why don't you give us a quick little cast rundown here absolutely i had some surprises in this cast man like really ones where i was like oh well that's fun so uh obviously we have steve mcqueen playing bullet we have robert vaughn playing chalmers we have jacqueline Bissett playing kathy foxy lady yeah she is really pretty like i I was like, that's even, even then, you know, I don't, I have a hard time with various decades and their hairstyles. Uh, not that one, not that one. Uh, Don Gordon as Delgetti, Robert Duvall as Weisberg, Simon Oakland as Captain Bennett, Norman Fell as Baker, George Stanford Brown as Dr. Willard. Black Dr. Willard. Black yes. Dr. Willard. Uh, Justin Tarr as Eddie. Carl Rendell as Stanton. Felicia Orlandi as Rennick or Johnny Ross, depending on, you know, who's who. Uh, Vic Tabak as Pete Ross or Victor Tabak. Uh, Robert Lipton is the first person without a name. He plays the first aide and also the guy with a sinister look on his face behind Chalmers most of the movie. Oh, really? Huh. Now, Yeah. yeah, I see that now. You've got to have the one sinister henchman. Listen, he could be a friend to us. He could speak for us where it counts. I was just like, would you just punch that guy? Like, for whatever reason, like, that scene, that guy was just like, this guy is just asking to be punched. Police. I tell you what, the only, can I, can I just go really random here? The underwhelmingness of Steve McQueen's weapon was my biggest problem with this movie. Like you got Dirty Harry's just rocking around with a Magnum, like definitely. I'm not saying he needed a Desert Eagle, but maybe like an old 1911 or something like that. You know, being like one the, of those stub nose 38 police special. You know, just yeah. as a, the pocket gun. I mean, they're supposed to have it in their ankle holster. You're supposed to have the real deal up top. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. 
Okay, so you want a little more firepower, or do you do yeah, you just want more gun little... fighting in general? Well, like I said, it, it could have used some more some more action in the beginning of it. Here's the thing: I don't want to understate the fact that I like this movie because it lacks it. I'm just saying that when I was falling asleep trying to watch this last night, it would have helped. Okay, so Steve McQueen, Mr. Cool at the time, Chris, how does he compress so much cool into one guy? I, I don't know. It's just. I have a hard time with him in this movie because it really is just Steve between staring at things a lot of the time. <laughs> and and like, I'm just supposed to like, Here, I, I didn't grow days. up like with Steve McQueen. So I don't get like the, Oh, he's cool. So <laughs> they just sort of expect, expect, you know, the audience to understand that he's Steve McQueen and he's cool. And it's cool to watch him stare at things. If you um, watch it with the captions on, it just says uh, silently being cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was being he actually handed over a lot of his lines and his script to the partner that he has. Uh, and Delgatti. Yeah, and he, he hands a lot of those over to him because he just kind of wants to stare and react. And for McQueen, he was uh, big on Humphrey Bogart. And, you know, he just wanted to have these, like, kind of uh, stoic, stoic faces. Silence. Yeah. Yeah, stoic exactly. silence. Yeah, um, I, I could have used a little dialogue to figure out what was going on, though, sometimes. I don't know. That's just me being a, a lazy uh, movie watcher, you know. It kind of reminds me of the 40-year-old virgin when he tells him, uh, you know, he's like, uh, just be a, be a jerk and keep asking questions, uh, repeating their questions to themselves. Kind of like David Caruso from Jade. And, like, he just kind of sent, like, really, like, calm face. He's like, it's like, can I help you? I don't know. Can you help me? That, like, <laughs> in a way, Steve McQueen embodies that, too. So we got Steve McQueen's characters based on a San Francisco homicide inspector, David Toshi. And uh, he made famous uh, for his work on the Zodiac killings. McQueen actually made a copy of Tashi's custom fast roll shoulder holster. So, Brian, you were saying you didn't like the shoulder holster. Apparently, it came from someplace. Oh, no, I was fine with the shoulder holster. I just felt like he needed some, some more firepower in the shoulder holster. Okay, got it. His standard operating procedures to fire, you know, with lots of people running around inside of a busy terminal. I don't know if I want him to have more firepower, though. Like, I'm good maybe with just a little pea shooter. Well, I mean, that's, I, I guess you could say that, but that's one of, like, the least accurate guns outside of, like, five feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if he is... Because, you know, you always have that part in the movie where they try, like, an absurdly long shot with a pistol. Well, they had like, that in this movie. Well, he was, like, it, he was aiming one, at him across the, uh, across the, the, uh, the airport. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things that I always liked about the John Wick movies. Like, they don't mess around with the fact that he uses short-range weapons for really short-range work. Yeah. That's actually the last movie I went and saw. And, and that's, I think that might have colored my, my, my watching of this movie. <laughs> my issues with the pacing like so i went and saw yeah. john with chapter three and then then this and it's like man nothing's happening so you were saying you had a hard time seeing robert vaughn in this movie brian robert vaughn had a hard time seeing robert vaughn in this movie because <laughs> he didn't like it at first and uh he didn't like the plot he thought it was a uh not a sensible storyline and actually it was steve mcqueen who came back to him and insisted that he do the film and once again when the tough guy steve steve mcqueen comes up and says you got to do this movie it's like okay okay i'll do it so oh, he was definitely the bad boy, right? Steve McQueen. You, you don't want him. He, he would beat your ass. Yeah. So, so he got him in the movie. Uh, I think that he did it. Uh, good that he did it. And actually, Robert Vaughn came around to the movie years later and eventually went on to say that this was the movie that he did that he was most proud of and that he was ultimately uh, saying that this was the greatest work that he was in as well. So, And, you know, he was in Towering Inferno as well. So uh, and as Brian pointed out, basketball. 
I uh, just wanted to toss this in here just because we mentioned Steve McQueen being kind of that bad boy. Uh, this is my uh, my book plug for this podcast. Uh, if you guys get a chance, read a book called Hellraisers by Robert Sellers. It's the life and inebriated times of Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Peter O'Toole, and Oliver Reed. It is a very interesting read. Does Hellraisers have Pinhead in it? <laughs> no, it's just... It's basically just stories about these guys and the lives they li- lived offset. Okay, that's a hard sell with no pinhead, but I'll check it out. Catherine Ross turned turned down the role of Kathy. Brian, I don't know if you remember Catherine Ross. She was uh, Elaine in The Graduate, which I think you said was one of your favorite movies, right? Oh, yeah, I definitely gave that at least a two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brian was not a fan of that. But anyway, uh, I don't know if you can picture Karen Ross, or sorry, Catherine Ross in this uh I could picture it, but uh, I like Jacqueline Bissett far too much to do a replacement with that, as I probably stated earlier. I'm biased. I I can't. I I recuse myself. Okay. <laughs> I don't think anybody needs to hear me talk about The Graduate ever again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's still a good episode. But anyway, uh, producer Philip D'Antoni, this is his uh, first the first film produced under Steve McQueen's production company, Solar. So it's pretty cool. It's actually was the first adaptation of this was from a Robert L. Fish novel. Uh, I certainly haven't read this. It's called Mute Witnesses. And uh, Detective Frank Bullitt was a Boston policeman, so they moved this to San Francisco. And he was an out-of-shape fat cop who ate a lot of ice cream and was ineffective and didn't solve most of his cases. Uh, it was thought to have Spencer Tracy in mind, but when Spencer Tracy died... Uh, the property of the hands fell into Steve McQueen and uh, pr- producer Philip D'Antoni added the chase scene, changed the location to San Francisco, and thus created one of the greatest thriller movies of all time. So good changes, bad it, changes, or do you want to see a fat Boston cop eating donuts, Tris? A fat? Uh, I don't know. I think it's a good change. Certainly what about change. like, what if you replace Steve McQueen? I know we're way too early for this, but let's replace Steve McQueen with an 80s Brian Dennehy. I was thinking John Candy, but okay. Uh, that might be too funny. Like, I'm looking for still, like, the serious, overweight cop. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Peter Yates. Uh, this name sounded familiar to me, and I'm, this is one of those fun moments of the show where you connect dots and stuff like that. Uh, Peter Yates did one of my favorite movies, Breaking Away, which I love this. This is earlier in his career, though, and Steve McQueen also personally selected him i I'm, no, I'm detecting a theme here where steve mcqueen just gets whatever he wants nobody knew who director peter yates was because uh, this was his first american movie but steve mcqueen saw the movie uh robbery which was based on the uh, great train robbery uh, which he'd done just prior to this and he loved the, the car work and that so much that he wanted to get peter yates in this so uh, i don't know if you're pick, picking up on this but uh, pretty much steve mcqueen's just getting whatever he wants now, I've never seen Breaking Away, but that's like one of um, Quaid's early movies, right? Yeah. Dennis Quaid's in that? Yeah. He's he's not got a main, like, he's he's like a tertiary role in it, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm a love... big Dennis Quaid fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, Chris, what do you think about the look and feel of Bullet? I think they spent a lot of time actually, you know, establishing sort of the feel of the of the movie, right? And trying to, I think it was trying to establish how cool Bullet is. Mostly, but uh, but the atmosphere, but it results in you kind of getting a good feel for the the '68 time period, right, mm-hmm. of the movie. I, I don't think that the, uh, I think I think you probably could edit a little bit of that down, 
but uh, overall, I think it does a good job. I can't help but compare this to James Bond because that was like the benchmark for a thriller action movie at the time. And to me, I think this is an interesting evolution because Sean Connery plays a very cleaned up, chic, you know, secret agent in the earlier part of the decade. And then here we are at the end of the 60s and times have changed and styles have changed. And you see this is kind of got a similar pace of the movie of those earlier Bond movies, but you see a much rougher uh, hero in this. I don't know. Anybody else want to compare Bond to uh, Bullet, or is that a, is that even a fair comparison? I can, no, I mean, I'm, I can I'm, see the comparison. I, and after you said that, it's like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense, certainly. I, I think, think as a visual, I would compare him more to Roger Moore as a Bond. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. But no, I'm, I'm sticking with my Dirty Harry. I like I, the fact that they didn't make a crossover with this, the two detectives. That would have been awesome. Oh, man. How did they not make sequels out of this? I mean, like, is it me or like, would you not like want like four of these movies? Well, nowadays you'd get four of them, right? If it, if you made you made it for five million and it made 40, you're guaranteed to get five of them, right? <laughs> That's, That's true. That is true. Well, I can't imagine this movie. You know what? I wouldn't even mind film filmmakers adopting similar techniques to make a retro movie today like this, because I guarantee you they could do it cheaper um, outside of uh, actor salaries, depending on who they chose. So you're saying like, actually, well, are you saying that it was, it's cheaper to do this without computers or? Yeah. You... I'm saying if they literally, if they made this movie again, so you tack on inflation they made this movie again, but they did it without all the high-flying Hollywood. I could stand to see a couple movies come out just to, you know, dip the toe in the water to see if – remember how Blair Witch Project blew everything up? Oh, yeah. I'm not saying do yeah. shaky camera footage, but I'm saying if they adopt the same methods used to make this movie, hire some people that are up and coming and they don't need a ton of money, I'd go see a movie – specifically filmed in an older style to see, you know, what that would bring to film today. Like a not overly polished a Russian movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I could see that. I, it, it, I mean, I feel like you could do it almost on like a, uh, an apps, like a student's. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah. I was saying, it, I, so this is a random tangent, but kind of the same deal. I was at the Apple store the other day and I was playing with one of the new iPads and someone had downloaded and I can't believe this is an app. But it's an app that makes your video camera look like a VHS recording. <laughs> okay. It was okay. one of the most hipster things I've ever seen in my life. Somebody but told me the other day cassettes, cassette tapes are making a comeback. Really? Oh, Why would you do I, that? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I had fun with them at the time. But uh, yes, uh, I, don't, I have no desire to go back to them. But, but that exists out there, and it really does. Like It turns your camera into like a 1990 CCTV camera. Hmm. Well, so you could do it. That exists. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, if, if you were going to make this movie, I bet my cell phone camera is light years ahead of every camera they use to film Bullet. So. Well, so the, the colors and the lighting in this movie, like, so, it, I mean, it's made on film. And, and film has inherent advantages over digital. And so it's still... Like, depending on how you did the digitization of the film, like, it still looks really good. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just it's just rough. The editing's right. kind of, it's choppy and rough. It is choppy. Which actually kind of cracked me up that it was, it, I, I spotted a bunch of shaky cam. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. maybe we can blame shaky cam on this and not born identity. Like, 
One of the first things Peter Yates did, though, when he got this job was he persuaded Warner Brothers to buy him a lightweight Aeroflex camera, which is a kind of a handheld camera, which is what you're referring, maybe referring to with that like shaky footage. He wanted yep. to have that in the car and uh, give you some of those first person shots to make you feel like you were in the car with Bullet. Well, even in like the car chase, we had some like shaky camera motion. Like it wasn't like on a smooth, like we had camera motion and it wasn't on a smooth dolly. Mm -hmm. And it's just, just something I noticed. So I have a question for you guys. When we talk about the filming of this movie, one of the things I noticed is how out of frame or how questionable some of the shots were. For instance, when, when he pulls over and she's having an issue with everything she just saw and she's talking to him about it, you have a shot of Steve McQueen's ear, <laughs> neck, and shoulder, which is completely blocking the bottom half of her face while she does like a five minute monologue about how ugly his world is. Now I, I have, I have a thousand issues with that scene to begin with and not just the way it was shot. Oh but, man. Okay. I think you could have cut her completely out of this movie and it would not have lost anything. Actually, unfortunately, except she's just, pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those statements are true by the way, but I actually have some defense of that scene in the way they shot that because I think they wanted you to show her eyes. And again, what's the part of your face that conveys the most emotion? I think they intentionally blocked that out. If you notice with the restaurant, they did a lot of interference and motion in this. And that's perhaps, I think, something that I think Yates wanted to see. Like he's he uses a lot of up close shots. Like when like Bullet goes into that phone booth, like they are like up in his face when she's doing that soliloquy. She is kind of, you know, the, the camera's right up in her face. And I think that was a deliberate and intentional emotional moment that they wanted to do. Chris is right. That's out of tone for pretty much the entire rest of the movie. But that's what they were going for there. Well, I, uh, I actually went online after watching that scene to figure out because my first thought was maybe she's a foreign actress and her lips don't match up with the audio. So I actually thought, I mean, she is a foreign actress, but she's from the UK. So that kind of poked a hole in that one. But uh, yeah, I, I couldn't remember earlier if you'd seen her talk, you know, normally, uh, you know, front camera shot. And uh, so, yeah, I looked it up just wondering if she was, you know, maybe she didn't speak English and, and those that whole part was dubbed over. No, she's oh, well, yeah, it's dubbed over. It's a loud, noisy, uh, noisy freeway. I mean. That's no, 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 I mean like someone else actually speaking for her. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Okay. Because they didn't show her mouth, so I was like, maybe it's not matching what's well, actually But it is dubbed over, so that it's still not going to match, right? So well, it's probably a true. smart move. But my, my point is I thought she was maybe a non-English speaking actress. No, she speaks better English than we do. She speaks British English, which sounds great. But um, English English? Yeah, English English. We're the ones who made it sound bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, Traditionally, movies at this era were using a lot of movie sets, and he shoots all of this movie on location. And I think that's a really cool element. So that is really San Francisco that they're cruising through the streets. They really immerse you into San Francisco. And this goes back, I know John was on this episode, not you, Brian, but uh, the Maltese Falcon we did, which was a San Francisco movie. And I kept thinking, I get nothing from San Francisco out of this. And the reason is, it's all shot inside, and they pretty much made the movie in L.A. And they took some like shots of the Golden Gate Bridge and said it was San Francisco and called it a day. But I really like that Peter Yates immerses you in the 19, late 1960s San Francisco. As Chris was talking about, Like I like the style of this movie. 
I really feel like I'm walking around the streets. I mean, just simple things like going in and buying some frozen dinners or walking into a restaurant or, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we had a ton of those shots, right? Watching Steve McQueen buy frozen dinners, but I don't know that it adds that much to the movie. That's what cool guys do. It just, it just, it just goes to show you the the job is all he had. Is that yeah? So, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess and, I, I think woman I think it was uh, I think it was it was poking at a uh, poor old Kathy there that she wasn't making him dinner every night like a good girlfriend would have been, right? Mm, Nineteen sixty eight. We're uh, we're criticizing her. She's a, she's a working woman. You Actually, that's letters. another progressive thing about this movie. She is either a artist, architect, or engineer of some sort who's clearly doing the construction and overseeing the design of a fountain uh, in a public area. Yeah, the movie really works hard to be progressive, right? Because it's got the black doctor, the young black doctor, too, and yeah. Yeah, I, there's there's definitely some people who left this movie being like, "What black doctor?" <laughs> yeah. So. No, kudos for that movie or for for that. Uh, they were they were definitely definitely expanding their territory. Uh, as someone who's an architect myself, I, and uh, Chris can probably attest to this as an engineer, uh, the number of women in coming out of these programs in the you know '60s is uh, slim. So I know for a fact uh, one of the great ar- temples of architecture, Crown Hall in uh, Chicago, didn't even have a women's room in the architecture school. So uh, that's literally the culture you're coming out of. So pretty cool that they did that. Yeah. Though, of course, you can just take plenty of time off to go drive McQueen wherever he wants to go, too. So we've got a. Is it weird that I kind of liked her car better? No, it's not at all weird. Okay. I, 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 I dug that. that. I, don't, you know, I funny don't even know what it is, but. That's... It's a Porsche Cabriolet. Like, yeah. McQueen's known for driving a lot of Porsches. Like, the bull, you got the bullet Mustang, but, like, mm-hmm. he raced Porsches. Yeah. So. <laughs> so he died at 50. I didn't actually look up what, how he died. Did he, James Dean it? Uh, he died badly of mesothelioma. Oh, yeah. He also was a an abuser of drugs. He he's actually not the nicest guy in the whole world. Like I watched a documentary on him on the special features of the Blu-ray that I had, and uh, he does. The story starts off pretty interesting, and he's a compelling personality in the in the early going. But yeah, he definitely starts the womanizing and using cocaine, and his whole life starts to come unraveled. And uh, there's a sad story where he's hitting his wife and stuff. So. Uh, Yikes! Yeah, uh, you know. I, 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 so again, read the book Hellraisers. The fact that Richard Harris lived as long as he did is maybe a greater medical miracle than Ozzy Osbourne. Oh wow! Okay, that's that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that they're going to do experiments on Ozzy Osbourne someday. It's like, why doesn't he die? Um, they're going to find the real Wolverine was Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, 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 uh. Is that so, Ozzy? So uh, Peter Yates actually was also did some racing himself. He uh, before he was a director, uh, you know, he was the son of an army officer. He went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, but briefly he starts out as a professional race car driving team manager, uh, before turning his attention to film. And so it's that appreciation out of racing that I believe injects his ability to direct a good chase scene and robbery, as well as this, and that's what got him this job. So, Chris, do you feel like Yates understands and appreciates the fast nature of the car? I think, well, I, what I really appreciated in this movie with the chase scene, and you don't see it in a lot of older movies, is they did not, I, I only spotted it once where they had obviously sped up the film to create a, a look that the cars are going faster than they are, right? So they're well, out they on that They did that road. a lot in Bond. Yeah, I they did, did that, that all that the time. So yeah, much, they did it all the so time in Bond. They, these, these scenes all seemed, I mean, they were real time or very close to it, right? Yeah. So I, I feel like they did a great job with that. And you didn't see like the, 
the shot of them flying off the, uh, I guess because they only had two cars, right? But them flying off the uh, jumps in San Francisco streets, right? Where right. it's obvious that as soon as that car lands, it's completely wrecked and they're not, that the chase is over. So yeah. we, had, we had nice little modest hops off those, those ledges. Can I uh, can I plug a different movie that I feel like is a very underseen film that has a great chasing and great cars in San Francisco is Eddie Murphy's Metro. OK, I haven't done it. I've never seen it. It is. A, he is a police negotiator and it's a very fun police movie with Eddie Murphy. So you got the comic relief in there, too. So, if any, if you guys haven't seen Metro, people watch Metro. While we're on the subject of San Francisco, this is going to be your little architect's moment here. When fake Johnny Ross departs the Mark Hopkins uh, Hotel and the taxi, we see the Bank of America building at 555 California Street. That's now the fourth tallest building in San Francisco, uh, seen under construction. However, at the time, it would go on to become the tallest building in San Francisco. So that's kind of your uh, tip of the hat for like, we're in San Francisco, see this really tall building. This is pre-Transamerica pyramid, uh, which is kind of the icon of the city now. But this particular building was built by SOM, world-renowned architects who did the uh, Hancock Tower in Chicago, as well as the Sears Tower. Big uh, name architecture firm, even though this is not their necessarily their nicest building. And why I'm talking about this building right now is if you're talking about Robert Vaughn and Steve McQueen from this movie, well, they get to inhabit this building because this is the same building that's in Towering Inferno from 1974. And we see that in the opening credits here. So uh, everything comes full circle. SOM, Steve McQueen, San Francisco, Robert Vaughn, Towering Inferno. How's that for some synergy? Better be SOM than SOL. <laughs> what did you think about the uh, wardrobe of this movie? Steve McQueen's kind of a fashion icon. He kind of, uh, some, some people will start picking up the, uh, you know, the trench coat, the brown tweed jacket with the elbow patches, uh, the, the turtleneck. The, yeah, you know, I mean, his look is emulated coming out of this movie. Chris, would you wear this in 1968? I'd wear it today, but I wouldn't trust my fashion sense. Okay. I don't know. The, tur- <laughs> the turtleneck's making a comeback, right? The turtleneck and the jacket. That, that's a, that's like is. Silicon Valley uh, staple now. Yeah. Well, no. Well, let me put it to you this way. I feel like what Steve McQueen wore to look cool in the 60s is now what Steve Jobs and others would have worn five years ago in Silicon Valley. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I don't know that Steve Jobs would wear those green, uh, very busy print pajamas that Bullet uh, displays. Oh, you don't know. You don't know. <laughs> I, I, I was sitting there was like, man, he looks pretty cool. But when you first meet him, he's got like these pajamas on. And my first thought is like, man, that's there's a lot going on in your pajamas. Cool guys don't wear pajamas, right? He ought to have just gotten up in his underwear. I'm just saying. If we really want to attract that female audience to the movie. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, you're right. He's he's very conservatively dressed. It must be cold in San Francisco. <laughs> Speaking of something else in his apartment that I have to call out, did you notice how he unlocked the door? Yeah, uh, it like stuck out so much to me. <laughs> this big lever, like. <laughs> yeah, I just assumed that that was something he like kind of ran down the the hallway, like you know when you buzz people in, 
exactly in modern times like i think that wasn't in his apartment i think that's something he had to go out into like the public hallway to do yeah but first time watching this movie was like is that how they did it in 1968 surely they had like a magnetic lock and then i realized oh it's san francisco it's an old town this is an old building that he's in this clearly is before the 60s like they, they, they could do better at this time but again that's peter yates immersing you in the world of uh you know san francisco that's that's a frozen dinner moment you know pull the lever unlock the door there's so much in this movie that's dedicated to making phone calls, like telling people where you are and checking in. It's like, I, I was really glad to have cell phones in modern movies. We can just move that along. Right? Oh, my favorite's the fax machine. Did you not yeah, see that scene where they're all standing around the fax machine? I'm sure that was really, really cool in 1968. Yeah, that, where they put the they put the set the handset on top of the, the machine and it slowly prints out a picture. The camera, like Yates just sits them shooting there looking at the machine for like yeah, five exactly. minutes. <laughs> I take great pleasure in watching the glassed over look in my staff's eyes when I say, oh, yeah, like a dot matrix printer. <laughs> well, it sounded like it. Uh, yeah, the sound in this movie, I guess, it, you know, they said it was nominated for sounds, but we've got a full sound of that fax machine. Like, it's right there. Guys, dot I, matrix sound. I don't know. When I did War Games, I thought this was going to be the hardest piece of old technology <laughs> to top and uh retro movie round table but i think bullet did it with that fax machine man (laughs) (laughs) telefax they were really proud of that for sure well the fact that they spent what maybe 45 seconds of them standing there while it printed (laughs) they're like we got one of these to put in the movie like that's that let's talk about product placement for a minute like i feel like that was uh that was probably a good plug for telefax at that point Definitely. Do you want a device that's the size of a car that prints <laughs> <laughs> one sheet every five minutes? Yeah. And makes a loud buzzing sound while it does so. But I mean, this was an hour and 47 minute movie. Like that's not something normal for an action movie in the 60s. And it's because of things like let's stand here and stare at a fax machine for close to a minute. That's a good yeah. point. That's a good point. You don't see that in the Q lab. Yeah. <laughs> it prints out of his watch and it looks like a Croy. One other guy who wasn't stylish is Steve McQueen. I got to point out Justin Tarr's character, Eddie, who's the informant that oh my. basically gives bullets. Like this guy looks like a very interesting human being because he has a beard that like turns into a mustache and like his chin is completely shaved. So it's like mutton shops that like morph into a mustache and he's got gigantic orange like lens glasses with thick black frames and his hair slick back and he is rocking that big collar of the 70s and actually this is 1968 i saw i saw eddie and i'm like what year is it man this guy's like ahead of his time like he's that absurd 70s guy okay so I'll, i want to speak to this for just Maybe a he second. said the absurd 70s people saw that and they're like that's the my look <laughs> well <laughs> now- Back uh, back during the Civil War, there was a uh, Union general named Ambrose Burnside that really was the first uh, heavy coiner of this mustache. Uh, he's actually where they got sideburns from, Okay, the, the name. So uh, anyway, he had the exact same thing, except it was much longer. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's that's kind of the genesis of of that hairstyle is at least in terms of my knowledge i asked mary if i should get some big orange glasses like eddie and uh grow the uh you know the uh beard stash and uh she said uh no no thank you car talk 
Uh, as mentioned before, Frank's car is a Highland Green 1968 Ford Mustang 390 GT 2-2 Fastback. Bad Guys Drive, a 1968 Dodge Charger 440 Magnum. And the Charger is actually faster than the Mustang with a 13.6 second quarter mile compared to the Mustang's 13.8 second quarter mile. Chris, tell us about the Charger as well as the Mustang. Which one would you prefer? Oh, the Charger. Any day of the week. I mean, that's that that car. And I was it's interesting when I was doing a little bit of research on the movie. They, it said that during the shooting of the chase scenes, they actually had to slow down the Charger so the Mustang could keep up. Um, it's a, Ooh. It's, yeah, that's a that's a pretty heavy uh, heavy diss on that that Mustang. It looked Yikes. cool, but uh, you know, I'm not actually a huge fan of old American muscle. I, I like some of it. You know, despite me naming this the the '67 uh, Camaro as my favorite you know car movie. Yeah, that sounds a like a car. strong car. But. Uh, the- well, listen, Vin Diesel's one of our listeners, and he's just going to find you now. Yeah, so so old American muscle certainly isn't my strong point, but uh, uh, that that Chargers is 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 the one I'd pick for certain. The Mustang, you know, I guess I guess it got a I got a bump because of the uh, the Steve McQueen effect. You know, if I was going to go with a classic car, and this is clearly not for speed, I would I would be a classic T-Bird kind of guy. Uh, there's a guy that runs a uh, a '68 Camaro around. Uh, around the race circuit here around Dallas. And uh, that thing is, it goes, he's got a twin turbo V8 in the thing makes like 1200 horsepower and it moves that, that car is cool. That's, that's Mm. my, uh, so Chris, Chris, how would you compliment the driving of somebody who does time trial racing yourself? Steve McQueen actually does a great deal of the races himself, or sorry, a great deal of the stunt driving himself. Uh, a little bit of it's Bud Elkins as well, and you can see McQueen in the car when it's him and as he's driving around, and that's no movie magic because he's really driving a great deal of the time. So how's Steve McQueen's driving? I think I think it looks good. I mean, for the most part, it's 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 well done, right? And I appreciated that the the cars didn't run completely clean through the streets of San Francisco. We got a little bumping and grinding on the uh, on the the side rails. Freeway, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely one scene where they tried to edit it out, but you clearly see one car smash into the side of like one of the parallel park cars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you got to wonder whether that car was actually part of the uh, the set design or whether that was just some dude parked his car on the side of the street in San Francisco and they, uh, no. they just ran into it. <laughs> so you, you know how at the very end of the movie you see uh, Chalmers get into the car and it says support your local police? Yeah. Uh-huh. I would have loved for there to be an earlier thing where, like, you know, when he almost or kind of goes into that ditch after the car goes into the gas station – if he had a bumper sticker that said, how's my driving? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's yeah. That I, I did have, I mean, I was, I was kind of disappointed the fact that the car goes into the ditch. I didn't see a good reason for it. I mean, you bump the other car, you see him drive away. He's still going straight. He's not spun out. And then magically he spins out into the ditch. They have to but do that. So the they have to do that. So his pretty girlfriend can drive him to the murder. That's, scene. Oh, yeah. but I'm telling you that's, you just cut that whole bit out. <laughs> I mean, the Porsche Cabriolet, you know, you lose the Porsche, the Porsche, but, uh, can, can we all can we just agree that although there's no animosity toward the length of this movie, that it easily could have been 30 minutes shorter? No, Uh-oh. my uh, you know, yeah, that was my sort of take on it is uh, you could have edited this down to a much snappier. And it's interesting to see like reviews that talk about uh, how snappy the movie was. Oh, but, uh, but <laughs> for me, it's like, no, I could have edited this thing down to be a half an hour shorter and kept things moving. OK, but. I, I, sometimes I like the the pace of an older movie, but uh, I, I guess I'm going to be in the minority in this one. Um, well, when it comes, to, it, just, it just depends on what you're trying to make. Like if you're trying to make a snappy action movie, which is what I, I kind of went in expecting, right? Mm-hmm. I expected mm-hmm. a, a snappy action movie, and I got a sort of atmospheric police procedural. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
So, so Bullet's burnout scene uh, that he was actually driving wasn't as part of the script. Uh, it was a mistaken missed turn, and they kept the footage rolling at that point in time. So that's that's pretty cool. Well, that's and I appreciated things. So that was a real burnout, right? This wasn't a hey, we're going to have a car, we're going to wet down the roads, we're going to drive the car on a wet road and have it spin up the wheels while it's going five miles an hour, and we're going to add smoke and tire effects in post. I, I like that it wasn't that, right? That that Again, that sticks out to me every time somebody does that, where you get the generic tire squeal sound. Yes. But yeah, so that's, that's what you're talking about. You shoot it on, on location with real shots, right? They, mm-hmm. they actually did the driving instead of just editing it to look faster later. Another one that I really thought was an interesting story here. There are two Mustangs involved uh, that the Ford Motor Company put in as a promotional agreement with Warner Brothers to put them in the car for the high-speed chase by veteran auto driver Max Balchowski. Uh, He's a stunt coordinator, and Carrie Lofton uh, got Bud Elkins to drive the Mustang for a a lot of the stunts, so it's not all Steve McQueen. But both Dodges uh, that were used in this movie uh, were junked afterwards, which I don't know if that makes you sad or not, Chris, but the other one, uh, the other less banged up Mustang was purchased by Warner Brothers employee after the production was done. And the car ended up in New Jersey uh, many years later where Steve McQueen attempted to buy it and the owner refused to sell it. And the car sat in a barn undriven for a really long time until Ford found it and wanted to promote their 2018 Bullet Mustang. And they revealed it and uh, freshened it up for the Detroit International Auto Show. So if you want to know where the cars of Bullet are, uh, some of them are in the junkyard. But uh, Well, they, they found the other one in a junkyard in Mexico is what I thought I'd read a while back. Oh, okay. In like 2017, they found the, the, other, the other junked one just hanging out in a junkyard somewhere. And somebody got it and was working on restoring it. Nice. Well, okay, there's the other half of the story then. So, yeah. So would, would you sell your car back to Steve McQueen, though, if he wanted it? How much is he paying? I mean, that's what I'm saying. He's not, he's not a nice guy, right? So he's, maybe he just maybe he's asked, asked, told him that's my car right? and offered him five yeah. bucks and said go to hell. Yeah, yeah, I bet I, I could see him coming up real short. Like <laughs> I bet Ford paid him like three million dollars and Steve McQueen was like fifty k. Yeah. And I won't punch you in the face. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Set. At that point, with all the cocaine, he probably didn't have a whole lot behind that punch. Yeah, it might be. That, that could be. For sure. Uh, Peter Yates calls for the speeds of this movie to be around 75 to 80 miles per hour. But once McQueen and the other stunt drivers got going, they took it to speeds of over 110 miles per hour, which uh, for our European listeners, that's around 77 kilometers per hour. So filming the chase scene took over three weeks to be 177 kilometers an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. 177 kilometers an hour. I I didn't uh, read that's what I get for not writing a number out and writing out words. So, uh, but you're right. And uh, guys, I want to, I want to interrupt real quick and give a shout out to everybody who listens to us overseas. That's awesome. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate you. That's an awesome thing. Yeah. Super honored. And, uh, we're starting to see more of that. Yeah. That's why, that's why I had to throw the kilometers out there, even though I'm clearly bad at it. Thank you, Chris, for fixing (laughs) that. But, uh, so filming this chase scene took three weeks, and it resulted in a scene that lasts 10 minutes, 53 seconds. They were also wanted to go across the Golden Gate Bridge, but they were denied permission for that part of this. So uh, if you were looking for that other piece of San Francisco uh, icon, they uh, they tried, they didn't get it. So It does kind of break up the, the chase scene that we never see them go over a bridge, right? So they got out of San Francisco, but the chase scene never shows the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, I did notice that when I was watching it. It's like, well, wait, how do we get out in these these rolling hills we never we never got off the island or not the peninsula but they lost some hubcaps along the way right 
they lost a ton of hubcaps along the way. Yeah. <laughs> the editor on this must have just, just been cursing on the entire time. He's like, gave, gave them all these continuity errors and chasing and just said, hey, make something out of this. Because uh, the hubcaps were, I, I don't know, I didn't count. I actually rented the movie on Amazon. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I'll go back and rewatch it again. Because I thought you had like 24 hours to rewatch it. I went back to rewatch it and Amazon's like, nope, you watched it already. Oh, like, oh, boo, Amazon. Yeah, boo. boo. Wow. Amazon, uh, Amazon, uh, step up your game. A Apple Movies would have let you watch that again. Yeah. Two, 48 hours, man. Yeah. First scene leaving the garage where we see the men in Chicago kind of making this getaway scene. There's a lot of camera work going on, and it's really interesting. Uh, some Definitely some good visual style here. But if you pay attention in the parking garage, you'll see a green Jaguar D-type car. That is Steve McQueen's Jaguar. So, more car talk. More more cars that Steve McQueen wasn't driving a Mustang, right? It's sort of like seeing Shaq in a Buick. Like, <laughs> Steve McQueen wasn't driving or, a Mustang. Or, Shaq's oh, not driving a Peyton Buick. Peyton Manning. No, no, Peyton Manning's my favorite. Yeah, that one, that <laughs> Every, or uh, what's the... McConaughey. Man? Yeah, McConaughey. Is like, McConaughey and a Lincoln. <laughs> that's, that's why I drive a Lincoln. I'm like, <laughs> I call bull... And that's straight out of uh, How to Lose a Guy yeah, in 10 Days. That's right. By the way, I found it hilarious that you guys reviewed that movie with Chad. Like, <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> he said, you got to do this, man. That's uh, like one of my wife's favorite movies. <laughs> she did not appreciate the review that much. Uh, oh. Oh, <laughs> no. Hey, well. See, I, I have the luxury of my wife completely ignoring the fact that I do this. <laughs> She's like, nah. I'm good. I hear you prattle about movies too much already. I don't need to listen to you do it on an hour and a half podcast. That's fair. That's fair. Um, one last one. In 2008, Motor Trend Magazine did an article promoting the 40th anniversary of the edition of the Bullet Mustang uh, because Dodge had also brought back the Charger at that point in time. The article featured a promotional gimmick photographing the 2008 Mustang and the 2008 Charger, simulating the famous chase scene where the riders breaking down the chase moment by moment to explain each car's strength and weaknesses under the new performances of the new machines. So, again, as Chris mentioned, the car companies are always happy to come back to this one. Yeah, they've used this to sell a lot of cars. So I, that's why I was surprised the car wasn't prom more prominently featured. Outside of the chase scene, we really didn't see the Mustang that much. We saw it like two scenes. Yeah, we saw him drive it beforehand. Yeah, we'd like see him pull up to a building. That's about it. Okay. I'll admit, I'll admit that when this movie was chosen, I expected it to be as car-centric as Gone in 60 Seconds and oh, no. Fast no, and it, Furious. It, it, it's, like, it's a, it's a I, detective I, movie first. Yeah, I, I, it well, is. I, I didn't read anything. I just, again, this was procrastination.com. But uh, I just, I, I thought it was going to be a bunch of car stuff. Like, I've got to get here real quick. Oh, well, no, someone's, you know, like, it, it really was just the one scene. Well, and, and what what surprised me, I guess, is that the actor, Steve McQueen, has no relationship with the car. And that's, as a car guy, like, I, but, and I, I'm not saying he needs to love the car, but he, he, it just, he just drives it, right? He doesn't. There's no talking about it to any other actors or any other actors acknowledging that he's driving a cool car. That's just Steve McQueen in general. Like there's no, it's just him just driving his car. That's nope, that's just his Mustang. That's what he does and, in general. Uh, he just drives life. He doesn't seem particularly worried that he just wrecked it in a ditch. He's just perfectly fine to go drive his his girlfriend's Porsche, you know. 
Yeah. So the music of this, I actually really dug this, and that's probably part of what hit me in the James Bond spot that I like. Uh, the the Lalo Schifrin uh, score, it, I really dig this, and for some reason it captures a full range of moods uh, for me. I like the sleuthy scenes. I like the big action moments. Uh, you got these. You got the, this brass. I don't necessarily think of this as intense music, but you know what? In the moment, it it was intense, and I liked it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the movie, the music in this movie. I thought that it added a lot to it. Yeah, I'm game too. Uh, I remember a couple times, especially in the cafe scene, where they have the, the kind of quote-unquote live music playing. Yeah. Like, that was maybe my... Uh, all right, I'm going to tack it up there. Uh, best scene. Okay. Uh, well, I thought Ron Burgundy would come on and play some jazz flute at any given moment there. <laughs> all right, look for this. Uh, Chris, do you have any look for this moments? I really enjoyed the the inclusion of the do- the charger, like in this movie overall. Like that, I want everybody to understand that that Dodge Charger is the cooler car in this movie, right? Fair. I think I made it before, but it's called Bullet. There's Bullet Mustangs. The Charger's the star. Okay. Nice. So the old man with the old man with the the uh, pump action shotgun knows what he's doing. Well, he's the he's the shot. He's he's literally riding shotgun. Okay. Whoever's driving <laughs> that car, he knows. Sawed off shotgun, hand yeah. on the pump. Yeah. All right, Brian, look for this. So my piece on this is not really a look for this in the movie, but look for this if it's on the street somewhere. The original rating for this movie was M for Mature. The one they actually put out was PG. I want to see the M for Mature version of this movie. No, I think M for Mature just became... So if I'm not mistaken, there's an M rating and it becomes GP. And then later, GP turns into PG. Don't quote me on that. Write me if I'm wrong. Okay. I, 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 don't, I don't know about ratings back then, but how I read it sounded like this movie was cool, and then they or they actually released it as not quite as cool. No, I think R was like R, and uh, M was like PG back then. But uh, okay. I'm not, I, wasn't, I wasn't around in the 70s, so absolutely, if anybody was, please correct me. So. Okay. No, we want to hear from you. Please let us know whether or not this movie actually has a cooler version out there somewhere in a film vault in Hollywood. Steve McQueen dropping F-bombs. <laughs> so I'm actually going to go for a look at this moment. Uh, kind of what Chris said. Uh, there was a little bit of staging here. If you look if you look closely, and I had to go back a second time after reading this, uh, the Volkswagen Beetle uh, during the uh, you know chase scene, the same dark-colored Volkswagen Beetle drives by at least three times, and the white Pontiac Firebird is seen three times as well. So, uh, at least. Then Daddy took it away. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> There is some degree of That's staging, so uh, they, they, the extra cars were used. But uh, again, this happens in new movies. I've mentioned this before. Batman is shot here in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, The Dark Knight Rises, and I can see it's such like, they're just driving around the same block over and over again. It doesn't look like it in the movie to anybody else, but when you're local, you're just like, that is a circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With the same cars, at least at least they change out the cars these days, right? I, I, I didn't catch that the Beetle was in there, though. That's interesting. I was paying too much attention to the, uh, the actual... The Charger and the and the Mustang. I wasn't watching the other cars. That's fair. The Beetle doesn't uh, have the count. New game, though. I want to introduce this uh, and the look for this moment. Over, under, what is the body count of this movie? Price is right rule, so if you go over, you bust. Uh, Chris, how many deaths are there in this movie? Four. Okay. Brian? Six. Boom. Six. Six. Duh, that was a fun game. <laughs> we need to play that with John Wick. I, I, they're, they're, okay. Uh... <laughs> That's it. 
Chris, you ready to hand out some awards? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the MVP for me was the editor. Like I said, with that, that chase scene, it seemed to me like they just handed him a ton of footage and said, hey, make something that actually makes sense out of this. And it kind of works. You, know, oh, yeah. you don't lose the thread of the cars get, you know, racing around San Francisco. Sometimes you get the, the, the too much, too many cuts and, and you sort of lose what's happening. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but they did a great job with that, that car chase scene. I think it really comes down to the editor. He can't fix the continuity errors. Right. It's what they shot. But uh, but he did a great job piecing it all together, I think. That's a good technical choice there. Brian, what is your who or who is your MVP? Uh, I'm going to go with Steve McQueen. This is uh, this is my first real Steve McQueen movie. I say real because I've watched some stuff on TBS and TNT before, but like this is the first one I really spent time paying attention to. I, I like the stoic look. It's 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 good. I'm behind it. You're down with the this Steve McQueen chair stares at things. You don't get Steve McQueen yeah. to act. You just get Steve McQueen to be in your movie. He's like a personality, like Jack Nicholson. You don't act Jack Nicholson to like do something you just want jack nicholson in your movie and i think steve mcqueen's kind of the same way and this movie oozes steve mcqueen cool so i'm giving him my mvp as well best supporting actor chris i'm gonna go with uh, robert vaughn I, I thought i i did it i really got him playing the self-serving politician even if i didn't really understand his motivations i, I got the uh, the character out uh, of him by, yeah. by his acting good one brian oh supporting actor I'm given to Robert Vaughn as Chalmers, as the squirrely politician that, you know, some guys are actual squirrely politicians and some guys play squirrely politicians, but I feel like you can peg them both on television. And I'm going to complete the sweep with Robert Vaughn as well. Chris, who is your hidden gem? I really liked uh, the guy who played the doctor, Dr. Willard, Georg Stanford Brown. Uh-huh. I thought even just a short little couple scenes, I think they did a really good job showing uh, the scene with him working on the on on Ross or Albert Rennick. Um, I thought that that whole scene was really well done. And he was a big piece of it. Great choice. Brian, hidden gem. I'm going to go with Robert Duvall as a taxi driver. I was um, expecting him to do something more, but you're right. He's just a, he's just a taxi. It's funny because I was watching for him the entire movie and I was like, where the heck is Robert Duvall? And then finally, it was his voice that got me. It's when Steve McQueen goes to the same phone booth that was used uh-huh. and uses a rotary phone for all those millennials out there who have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was the voice that got me. And I was like, oh, there he is, Robert Duvall. I like that you explained that the phone booth, the old part of it was the rotary part and the, not the phone booth. That's the phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I liked, I liked his, his sort of deadpan delivery of that uh he put a lot of change in. That <laughs> goes long distance goal. Put a lot of change in. Just... Oh man! For all you kids who don't even use cash anymore, there is in fact coin. Uh, he didn't Venmo it. Hidden gem though. Uh, we've. Got, I'm gonna go with Simon Oakland. He's Captain Bennett. I like the. I like the fact that uh, he gives uh, Bullet a lot of leash and isn't like on the politician side of things. He's not really playing the game. Also, he's in Hitchcock's Psycho. Nod to Simon Oakland there. Um, recast somebody, though, Chris, if you had to recast somebody. Yeah, I couldn't figure out a contemporary replacement for the hitman, but I would have rather seen somebody that came across more on the scary side and less on the creepy side. Yeah. I, I just couldn't figure out who uh, who that would be. 
But yeah, the Hitman just uh, he just didn't seem to do anything for me. No, I'm with you 100%. Man, we're stride for stride on this one. I, I'm actually going to put Telly Savalas in there. If you're familiar with him, the, who comes to my mind? And actually, the very next year, he's in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is a Bond movie. He plays Blofeld in that. He's uh, tough enough, younger, and uh, he looks like he would be a pretty tough Hitman. And he's coming off the heels of the Dirty Dozen. Uh, maybe this is an overcast by putting him in there, but uh, maybe we could get a little more of a fight scene in the hospital before he makes it his way out. If uh, we cast Hillary, have an old man hitman. Yeah. yeah. So that, I'm with you. Well. I'm 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 with you on that one. So you can share my Telly Savalas pick. Brian, who are you recasting? I don't want really to do a recast with this. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. I I want a merger. I want. More of these style action movies uh, having numbered depth to them. So it's not so much that I want to recast. I just want maybe this goes back to our uh, Marvel movie discussion. I want more cop here. West Coast cop heroes. I want I want a, a, a collection movie. You want an Avengers assemble of, of West Coast cop heroes. So you want Dirty Harry, Bullet. <laughs> And Metro, I guess, apparently I've not seen this movie. Well, uh, Metro is in New York. But no, I uh, no, I just I think that th- this was a genre that was out there and there was a uh, an, an opportunity for more. And I want more because mm. I, I need these characters to play the same people, but I want more of it. OK. All right. Uh, that's 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 a touchy recast there, but we'll go we'll go on from there. And best shot of the movie, Chris. I really like. There's a reflection shot right at the beginning of the movie at the hotel that comes off the rotating door as we open. Like the we see Albert Rennick go into the hotel to check his messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was just a. I, I'm I'm a sucker for for light reflections and 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 that sort of shot where. Well, how about when Chalmer walks up behind the two of them when they're waiting for the plane to disembark? Yeah, that was a good shot too. Yeah. I'm actually going to go with, this is technically a collection of shots, so I'm bending my own rules a little bit on this one, but the dinner with Kathy. Because no one ever does that. Yeah, the the, 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 <laughs> uh, the dinner with Kathy um, is, is going to be, there's a collection of really good shots in here. It shows you that they're on location. It shows you that they're in a restaurant. There's stuff moving in front of the camera. It's in, the, it's in there, and in a way, I really feel like I'm there with them. And I just somehow feel like that's one of the most immersive scenes of the movie. So uh, I'm going to go with Dinner with Kathy. Best scene, Chris. I actually laughed out loud when his captain told him to play it by the book. And the, uh, you need to play this one by the book. And uh, I, 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 it just <laughs> that had the most impact to me. Anything else in the whole damn movie? Um, <laughs> okay. It's, Nothing's by the book. I, I don't know. How far back, how far, how far back does that, that go, right? I'd, I'd be interested to see what's the earliest case of a captain telling his detective to play it by the book when it's the loose when it's the loose cannon loose cannon the loose bullet cannon right is this is this where that all started i don't know <laughs> that's another thing i love how his name is bullet it's like yeah. i'm a name bullet <laughs> it's cool brian best scene i'm gonna go with best shot here and it was the dude firing from a ditch <laughs> yards and yards and yards away and still able to hit an airport light at the feet of Steve McQueen. Truly best shot. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, my best scene, I'm going to go with the obligatory chase scene because uh, nobody else picked it, and I, I have to pick it. It's, uh, it's, it's 10 minutes of amazing uh, 
uh, racing action. It is the grandfather of chase scenes. And uh, when you look up any internet uh, countdown of the greatest chase scenes of all time, you will not find one before Bullet even on the list. So this is kind of this just just tells people that hey, chase scenes can be a real event in a movie. So we wouldn't have these really cool, uh, you know, like the Bourne chase scene uh, or some of the great Bond chase scenes that come out later, like Live and Let Die. But you just wouldn't have these awesome chase scenes if it wasn't for this movie. So I picked the chase scene. Good job, Peter Yates. I, I want to toss something in here just because it, it gives me a tickle that it happened. As soon as you said that, I googled greatest chase scenes of all time. And the, the first thing, I'm not going to say it's numbered in correct order, but the first thing that comes up is Robert De Niro's movie Ronin, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. I actually just made my father-in-law watch it for the first time and it does have a fantastic chase scene in it and it is the only thing in front of bullet no no that's fair and i'm not even just talking about how good it was i'm talking about like there's nothing with an earlier year than bullet on any of these countdowns and like this as, as chris mentioned a lot of the movies at this era are just speeding up the car action and so i feel like this is the escalation of of this kind of scene so so according to google in terms of their popular on the web listing it's ronin bullet french connection born identity fast five original gone in 60 seconds smoking the bandit blues brothers Hmm. okay that's a good list no I, i wanted to plug ronin because i feel like a lot of people probably haven't seen it and if you get a chance sean bean's in it and doesn't die like, that's a big thing. You spoiled it. <laughs> um, it really doesn't. Change, <laughs> it really doesn't. So change one thing, Chris. I would eliminate the entire Kathy storyline. I, I think it doesn't add that much. I know you, we like the shot in the, in, in, the, in the restaurant, but I don't think her monologue in particular was quite abrasive. More on that in a second. We've been stride for stride, but this is where we part paths. Uh, but close. Uh, Brian, you go first, though. Subtract 30 minutes. Dang cold-blooded like there, there's 30 minutes of gut out there that didn't need to happen and i have a little like look i'm gonna take this as it is because i own it now and <laughs> i will watch it again but uh, uh, no it didn't need that extra 30 minutes okay. like am i am, am i happy it's there sure i mean that's 30 more minutes of film i get to watch i'm i'm always happy about that uh in, unless the movie is alexander but <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's uh, like it's like one of the uh, biggest movies we go to punch. Like like oh, that, that's God. one of our punching it's, bags. Chad hates it. I hate about, it. If you Brian want to talk about it. a movie that went way too long, yeah, I'm on board. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know if I mentioned this in previous punching bag moments of Alexander, but I saw the midnight showing of it. Oof. Yeah, you now, have you have, you've mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Thank thank God I was in my teens. Like I couldn't do that now. I I would have been unconscious. I would have been snoring in that movie theater now. So my change one thing is going to be similar to Chris's, only I see a problem with Kathy's character. I see that she feels attached. She's there for sex appeal. And uh, while I like Jacqueline Bisset uh, for aesthetic reasons, I believe that we should also be giving her value in the movie. I think it is good to put a woman in the movie. I think it is good that uh, Bullet has depth outside of this, but you have to give the character something to do. I think it would be far more interesting 
if she becomes mixed up in things, if by trying to help drive bullets somewhere, she's shot at in the in, in the mix, or maybe perhaps the gangsters come after her, uh, you know, as a way to get to bullet and they capture her at some point, or they have her in the car and he's chasing after them so aggressively because they have Kathy in there. And again, she's a smart person. She's, she's a designer herself. Maybe she can contribute some piece of information that helps unlock the story of what bullet's trying to uncover. And through this personal relationship that he has, that that unlocks another part of the mystery for him. So any of these options, I'm not saying all of them. I'm just saying make Kathy do something. I'm not going to say cut Kathy, but you've put her in the movie and uh, I like her. Just make her matter more. Yeah, okay. I, so I, I, I've I'm got good with that. I, I just, yeah, I've got I actually had best supporting actress, sense. Jackie, just for a minute, just because, or for Kathy's for Jacqueline Bissett, just because, she, you know, she got that script and still went in every day and shot that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's, like the script had to, I mean, it's like, oh, you're going to show up and be a, a side piece. Yeah. I mean, well, and it, it is the sixties and it was progressive in some ways, but in other ways it wasn't. So, uh, that, yeah. So there, there, there are two things I want to say on this piece. Uh, the first one is I think that this is where sequels would have really come in handy because I think what her purpose was is to try to pull him away from the violence of his life. I, I feel like the end sequence where he looks in on her and he's washing his face in the sink and it just ends mm-hmm. is 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 him reevaluating what's really important to him because you already have Chalmers vowing to to destroy his career and everything. So I like to think that maybe the end of that is him taking what she said off the freeway to heart and since someone's already out to you know burn him at the stake, maybe it's a good time to walk away. The second thing I'll say on it is when you have a, a love interest in a movie, um, which I didn't find super uh, evident at first, uh, like, cause he has the part where he comes into her place of business and, and they're joking and everything. I didn't really realize that's who he was with. And did anybody else notice that she was sitting super far away from him at the dinner table? (laughs) So I thought he was just kind of like making eyes at her and she's just like, okay, so I, I didn't feel like they did a great job of making it really evident that they were a thing, but she's put in there to, to kind of save his humanity and everything. Like, look at all the death that happens around you. There are better things, you know, come with me. Yeah. Uh, so where do you stand, Brian? Are you with Chris on the removal of the character? Or are you in the, uh, my boat where it's like, uh, we need to do more with the character? Well, I'm one of those people that harps on about character development all the time. So, if if they had extended this past one movie, and I know I'm the guy that said make this a shorter movie, but if they had <laughs> made second movie, really more in in tune with it, whether it ends up being a, I'm done with you, you you you're you know set in your ways, or if they had you know actually brought him in as like maybe he was fired from the police or quit uh, abruptly based on what had happened, and then they had to come back to him based on a a previous case he had worked on and we need you back bullet. You know, I would have been cool with that too. I wanted to see a movie where Robert Vaughn is uh, a corrupt politician and bullets uncovering one of his corrupt schemes. Sure. And Vaughn starts using people to get at bullet uh, because he's, he's messing in his business. I want to see this movie. I, yeah. I, I thought that I thought that was going to be the twist that Chalmers was in on it somehow. Right? Oh, I did too. I did too. as soon as he he pseudo accused them of uh, giving out the location, yeah. I was like, "That's going to be what happens." Um, 
as soon as he started really digging into who Ross was, I started thinking, oh, that's not that that guy's a decoy. Like that's I'm not going to say I like completely called it out, but it was way before they really revealed it that I was like, yep, as a decoy hmm, that got me. Well, so and, I thought and, there was going to be a twins thing because he had his brother Pete, right? That I didn't really. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, that that would have been good too. I actually didn't think about that until you just said it right now, and I was like, oh, that would have been a thing. Uh, Chris, best quote of the movie, and you can't pick Steve McQueen uh, standing there without saying anything. No, <laughs> Steve McQueen says one word, and uh, he, Chalmers comes up to him at that airport and says, "We have to compromise," and and Steve's response is just bullshit. Okay. <laughs> it well, is shit it, it's one of the most it's yeah it's definitely one of the uh biggest uh quotes from the movie for sure brian what's your best quote of the movie best quote of the movie is probably i actually really enjoyed the monologue that she gave him off the street mm-hmm. uh, i'm a big fan of looking up like best monologues of all time and stuff like that and i've never seen that one but i thought that was a very impactful piece to the movie uh not a huge fan of how they shot it <laughs> but um, really enjoyed the the entire piece. Okay. So the quote that I'm going to as well comes from that scene, but I'm going to specifically latch on to the, she's gone on and telling him that he lives in a sewer and that his life is just nothing but violence. And so she's asking him, what will happen to us in time? And Bullet gets a kind of profound statement. It was like, time starts now. I, I did not get that at all. What am I missing about that line? That's some existential crap. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say. That seems to be like a a, a Will Smith's son sort of response. (laughs) Like, like, time starts now. Like, how can our eyes be real? Like, it makes no sense. Like, I just can't get it. Oh, you still believe in time, do you? (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. I'm, I'm I'm very happy with that reference. So Chris, it's time to rate this movie on a five star scale. What would you rate Bullet? I, I'd go three out of five. I really there's a lot of pieces I really like to it, but like Brian, I, I think it really needed a, a a little bit of a weight loss. You could have cut a bunch of stuff from the movie and, and made it a little bit more snappy. Wow. Okay, uh, Brian, five star scale. Uh, I'm gonna give it a four. I, I think it's rewatchable. I think it's a it's a solid movie. Um, does it have flaws? Sure, but it's enjoyable. Um, I think it's important for when I criticize people younger than me and how they view things. I think it's important that that folks our age view things through the same lens. Like enjoy what was enjoyable before. You don't have to change for change's sake. So, yeah, four. I am I was borderline 4.5, but I'm going to also match your uh, review and give this one a four. Uh, to me, the style makes me tilt towards going 4.5, but uh, as we were talking about with uh, Jacqueline Bissett's character, uh, perhaps some of the murkiness and the political scene of what is who is this politician guy and what is his motives. When you start to really pick apart some stuff, I feel like it is an action movie at the end of the day, 
but um, I feel like there's some of this because it's it's a it's got dramatic elements and it's almost really good at that. And I feel like Yates has the look and the steel and the style of a better movie, but with just a little better on the writing. This could have gone from a four to you know four and a half, maybe maybe five. But I mean, I'm 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 with you, Brian. I'm hitting that four mark. Right on, Brian. You want to help me pick a movie for next time? Absolutely. Let's go. We're going to get into some campy science fiction stuff from the 80s is the general theme of what I'm about to throw your way. Going a little bit off the beaten track, but we'll see how you like this. Option one, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. That's with a K for clowns uh, from 1988. Aliens who look like clowns come from outer space to terrorize a small town. Option two, Rocker Rule from 1983. A malevolent rock star kidnaps a female singer to force her to participate in the summoning of a demon and her band must help her stop him. Has music from Debbie Harry, Iggy uh, and the Stooges. A lot of music in this one. So this is an animated music kind of rock opera. And then option three, we have The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension from 1984. The adventurer, brain surgeon, rock musician Buckaroo Banzai and his crime-fighting team, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, must stop an evil alien invaders from the Eighth Dimension who are planning to conquer Earth. This is obviously going to be a part that is cut, but what the sh- <laughs> who did these come from where did we get these movies uh, i was gonna say definitely not the cra- uh, the clowns one because what the hell <laughs> i like that that's <laughs> aliens that look like clowns i'm in <laughs> okay all right so um well russ i guess i'm gonna go with uh Buckaroo Bar Bonsai. <laughs> okay. I'm it's, sorry, I was trying to keep a straight face for that. I just couldn't. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. One, one more time without laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm missing the Mystery Science Theater episode. I'm really <laughs> down on this. If you, you are. You are missing that. That is what this is going for. <laughs> oh. All right, fantastic. <laughs> uh, we're gonna get uh, we're we're gonna get weird and robotic with this. It's uh, straight out of mystery science theater. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show for your first time. We hope you had fun. We had fun with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And to all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Give us a rating and review, particularly on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews really help bring others to the show. It's the number one thing you can do to help us out. We really appreciate it. And it doesn't even take much time on your part. Give us a like on Facebook. You can follow along with the movies we do. We can give some feedback from you each week. Uh, give us your thoughts and argue with us and tell us why we're wrong. So, Or tell us what you loved about the movie. And also, email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you have more expansive thoughts, something lengthier, or if you want to be on the show yourself. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? I try to learn your ways, understand your obsessions. But this baseball, it's so bleeding boring, isn't it?